So should we start the interview now? I am at your convenience. So whatever you like. My only favor to request, Sophia, is that uh, at 9.30, I have to go to another call. So I'll have to finish a little bit before that. Okay, that's fine. We'll Great. We'll finish before 9.30. Okay. Uh, so um, what was your dream career as a child? Yes. So when I was a young, uh, when I was a young man, Sophia, I really wanted to work in the national park system. I have a huge interest in conservation and outdoors, and I love the mountains. And I thought that working uh, somewhere in the national park system, whether that could be as a as a park warden, as a park ranger, or even as a park uh, policymaker, would be tremendously interesting. So that was my dream vocation. And what, and, and what were who caused you to have an interest in the national parks? Uh, I'm sorry, what, what, what uh, can you repeat the question please, Sophia? Uh, uh, what were who caused you to have an interest in the national oh, parks? Sure, so, so I grew up in Western Canada, Sophia, so I grew up in a uh, in a in a country and a, a part of the part of Canada that had uh, immense amount of natural beauty, uh, spectacular mountains, uh, uh, pristine lakes, um, hiking, skiing, grasslands, and uh, I just became a huge fan of nature, a huge fan of of experiencing uh, the natural world around us. And then when I went away to university, Sophia, I realized that many parts of the world don't have such a fortunate situation. Um, and many parts of the world have uh, greater populations, have greater industrialization. Um, so it was then when I realized that, you know, the world has nature for all of us to enjoy. Some places have more of it, but the places that do have that, uh, that great benefit should do all that they can to preserve it and uh, manage it responsibly for not only today's uh, population to use and enjoy and uh, refresh themselves, but also future generations. So uh, it was really the product of growing up surrounded by nature and then having an experience where I realized that not everyone had that great uh, chance that I had uh, really every day growing up. Okay, thank you. And what did you do as the vice president? And oh, um, sorry, who was your hero at that time? Sure. So I had a number of heroes. I mean, of course, you have heroes inside your own household every day with your mother and father and then community leaders. But I became a big, very big fan of uh, the president of the United States in the early 1900s, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. And I became, uh, he was my hero or someone that I admired quite a bit because he really single-handedly as president helped uh, accelerate and support the movement of conservation in the United States. So he created a large number of national parks during his administration. He helped foster um, a number of national forests. He was uh, a little bit controversially, he was a hunter. And, you know, some people feel hunting doesn't always align well with the world of conservation, but he was an individual 
who kept the uh, importance of the natural world and our environment around us um, uh, as, a, uh, as a key priority for his mission and his policies and his, uh, his administration. Um, I actually have an autobiography of him and that I plan to re on reading this summer. After Fantastic. I <laughs> and you might want to read, there's a very good story, um, a, a very nice sort of, it's true story, but it's almost like an adventure story um, called The River of Doubt. He was quite an adventurer um, in, his, in his lifetime. Um, and this is a story where he, uh, went down to uh, South America to uh, uh, find and uh, go down the rapids of a very uh, challenging river. So uh, he was a, uh, as I said, he, uh, you know, in his lifetime, uh, he had some, uh, as we all do, he maybe made some mistakes that he'd want to go back on, but he was definitely a lover of the world around us. He was loved being outside and he was <clears throat> a courageous adventurer um, seeker. Okay, and um, did you're here at that time, and your interest in national parks caused you to uh, start working with the Bayak Group a few years ago? Well, uh, it, in some respect, yes. So what I also discovered uh, that, uh, as I told you, that many parts of the world don't have this great opportunity to. Um, have had their national uh, splendor and, and beauty uh, preserved. I also discovered as I traveled uh, as a young man, uh, both for school and my early professional career, that there are many uh, developing countries in the world that uh, also have significant natural resource uh, issues. They might have a scarcity of water. They may have a scarcity of um, uh, suitable land for agriculture. Um, they may just not have a, uh, an, an opportunity to have been blessed with natural resources that they could convert into, <coughs> uh, they could convert into businesses. <coughs> Pardon me, Sophia. So, I, I soon learned that actually the particular niche our focus that I, I love to learn most about was the convergence of natural, uh, the world around us, the environment, um, natural resource management, especially in developing countries. And so at the Bayat Group, uh, the Bayat Group is a family office, which means that it's a, uh, a, a series of businesses and philanthropic organizations that was started and is still managed by a single family. It's based in uh, Florida, but the family is from Afghanistan. So it's an Afghan-American family. And they have spent, since 2002, um, their entire focus on building sustainable businesses in Afghanistan to help create jobs for Afghans, while simultaneously uh, completing a number of philanthropic initiatives that are important for not only people's health and people's education, but also important for preserving Afghanistan's natural uh, uh, world around it. So, um, uh, so it was sort of a indirect route, but the idea of helping a young country, a young developing country such as Afghanistan, and in that case, that's a country that's had significant 
challenges uh, coming from a, a number of decades of conflict and war to help sort of build physical and social and human infrastructure as well as natural infrastructure for the future generations of that country. So um, in some respect, there was a connection, yes. Uh, what was your main part um, working, what was your, what was the main part of your job working with the Bayat group? Sure. So I'm responsible for uh, what's called business development and international investments. So Sophia, I really had three main responsibilities. Uh, first, I was to help identify other young developing countries, usually countries that had also suffered through some conflict and war that uh, was, were, would be in need and present nice business opportunities for investment. Um, so I uh, placed some investment money in some other young markets around the world, such as uh, Ethiopia, uh, Mongolia, and the Republic of Georgia. Uh, my second responsibility, Sophia, was to help launch uh, several new businesses Again, these are businesses that are infrastructure businesses, so businesses that would support the development of additional industries on top of them. So we uh, set up and established businesses in the energy space and also in the electricity and power generation space. And then my third responsibility, Sophia, was to help <clears throat> develop strategy and implement projects related to the philanthropic organization, which is called the Bayat Foundation. And the Bayat Foundation uh, over the years has completed more than 500 individual projects. And they have some specific priorities related to education for girls, uh, health for mothers and new children, newborns, um, as well as for creating jobs and you know, treating uh, the environment and serving the environment. So those are my three responsibilities at the Biot Fund, at the Biot Group. Okay, thank you. And sure. so, um, so what was the most rewarding part of your job when you were working with the Biot Group? Sure, well, for sure, the most rewarding part of the job is uh, not only sort of uh, helping build a business from the very just from a concept or idea stage, Sophia, to where it's actually operating and implemented. But the, within that sort of uh, process, the most interesting or rewarding piece is to watch the young Afghans. Often these are individuals, young men and women, who, because they grew up in a time frame and were going to school in a time frame where it was extraordinarily difficult in their country, um, this is before 2002, so you know they might have been in school or going to high school during uh, effectively a, a, a time when there was a lot of conflict. War is a very uh, rigid and structured community. Um, you know, to watch these young Afghan men and women um, learn how to build businesses, acquire new skills, and then have the responsibility to actually set targets for themselves, both personal and professionally, and then work hard to meet them. So it's really the, the human, the journey of uh, human development that is the most rewarding when you start and work on a project in a young country like Afghanistan. Thank you. And so 
Um, right now you are not working with the BIAP group. Uh, you are at the um, you are the advanced leadership fellow at Harvard and also working with Aero Farms. So, what impact does COVID nineteen generate on your business and projects? Sure. So, <clears throat> I can answer from two perspectives because I. I still have some responsibility with the Bayat Foundation, the charitable organization in Afghanistan. So first, from, uh, from the Afghan perspective, COVID-19 has unfortunately had a severe impact on the nation. Um, this is a country, Sophia, that had uh, very limited health infrastructure or medical capacity even before this pandemic. Um, and, uh, and honestly, many Afghans don't have the luxury of working from home or taking time away from uh, their, their traditional work style, which would normally involve lots of close human interaction. So uh, we have been spending a lot of time, the foundation has, uh, we have been sourcing and uh, uh, flying into Afghanistan and distributing. Uh, medical supplies, necessary uh, equipment, um, but unfortunately the, the challenge is significant for that nation. It is, uh, there are many cases and likely many cases which uh, uh, are not reported but exist. Um, so I think unfortunately Afghanistan has quite a challenge ahead of it. Um, with regards to Aerofarms, now Aerofarms is a very uh, interesting uh, company in the sense that it is what's called an indoor farming or vertical farming company. So what this means, Sophia, is we have the opportunity um, to grow, uh, to study, grow, and, uh, and produce plants inside a controlled environment. So it could be inside a warehouse or it could be inside an old uh, factory building. Um, and uh, we can grow these plants very efficiently. So the connection with COVID for Aero Farms is that during this pandemic, many people uh, became very aware that they were reliant on uh, oftentimes other countries or very distant uh, places to produce, whether it be their food, whether it be some of their regularly used items in their household. So for companies such as Aero Farms, because we can position the farms right beside the place where you want to have the food uh, delivered, um, it's become quite an interesting and productive time for the company because the issue of food security and what we call food traceability, and that, Sophia, means basically understanding when you buy a piece of uh, uh, when you buy a, a, a lettuce or you buy a piece of fruit at the grocery store, you want to know exactly where that came from and how it was grown and who handled it. So these are issues which indoor farming in general is, uh, was designed to help address. So um, there's been a lot of increased interest around vertical farming uh, during the pandemic time. So would you say that the pandemic have um, a positive impact on aero farms or have a quite negative impact on your business on, um, on Afghanistan and, and? So for sure, the pandemic has, uh, has had a significant 
uh, negative impact on Afghanistan and will continue to be a serious challenge for the country uh, in the months ahead. Um, Arrow Farms, I'd say, you know, I wouldn't say that we have, um, you know, we're not benefiting from the pandemic because, Sophia, no one ever benefits from sort of this terrible situation that the world finds itself in. I'll just say that the issues that Arrow Farms and other vertical farming companies uh, were developed to address related to food security and food sourcing. These are issues which have been highlighted. The importance has been, again, highlighted and emphasized during the pandemic. So more people are interested in exploring uh, solutions or alternative ways to grow uh, food items. So there's definitely been a, a, a positive increase in the number of people that want to learn more about aeroplanes. Okay, um, thank you. So what are your initiatives to cope with this challenge, especially uh, with um, the challenge that COVID-19 has posed, uh, has, um, in, has for Afghanistan and many other countries? Sure. So in Afghanistan, again, this is a this is a country, Sophia, that has um, even before the pandemic, they had a lot of they'd made a significant progress since two thousand two, but they still had a a long way to go. It's still a very young uh, young country in its uh, in its new beginnings uh, since two thousand and one. So we've spent some time, and the nation has actually spent. Uh, a lot of time and effort and money to on distance learning. So basically it might be very common for uh, yourself and me and many others here in the United States or North America or other parts of Asia and the world to have gone through schooling online. It, uh, it might not have been our preference, but we were able to sort of pivot and uh, have studies, uh, you know, children, students had studies on their computer and carried on with some degree of, of regular learning and regular business interaction. People, many people are now being able to work from home uh, in a number of industries. Um, however, in a young country like Afghanistan, um, you know, broadband or internet accessibility is not as prevalent or consistent as it is in a, in a developed country. Um, so we've been spending some time and the curriculum was never designed really to be taught remotely. It was always envisioned in a young country like Afghanistan that there would be a, a teacher and students and there'd be daily interaction. Now, of course, that's very difficult and not possible uh, during this time frame. So uh, <clears throat> we've been helping the country um, uh, understand and we have some businesses that are in the, uh, the field of telecommunications and uh, internet services. Um, understand how they can um, uh, share that accessibility. Um, we've had some programs where in Afghanistan we've provided students with um, uh, either free or very uh, uh, subsidized or discounted um, pricing for broadband so that they could take their studies online. We have some scholarships to help support students that um, can't go to school now and, and will have to take some studies online. So we've been trying to, if you like, maintain a sense of uh, some degree of normal opportunity, especially for young generations to continue to study. Okay, thank you. And 
Um, so, so, and so aside from the BIAC group, you also um, focus on many topics such as the water scarcity problem. And so what caused you to be interested in the water scarcity problem? Is it because of your interest of the national parks? That's correct. So it all revolves back to my interest in the natural environment in which we live and how we use and how we respect and conserve that environment, Sophia. So for me, as I mentioned, I traveled, I had the, the, the privilege of traveling to many uh, young countries, developing countries, and part of my academic and early professional uh, experiences. And as I said, uh, many of these young countries don't have the, uh, haven't had the opportunity to preserve and conserve and, uh, and, and set aside big parts of their natural ecosystems. They've, maybe they didn't have them to begin with. Maybe they were in a, uh, a country that uh, wasn't blessed with having a seashore. Maybe it was a very arid or very desert or dry uh, climate. Um, so as I traveled around Sofia, uh, it became quite clear to me that one of the most important issues that we're all going to have to navigate uh, as the world uh, collectively is the availability and distribution of fresh water. Um, uh, you know, the world is a high percentage of water. Unfortunately, most of that water is seawater, so it's not uh, very usable to us in terms of drinking. Um, or in terms of irrigating uh, or watering our plants. Um, the amount of fresh water is actually very small and the distribution of that fresh water, Sophia, is, <clears throat> is not very uh, widely dispersed. So some countries have a lot of it and many countries don't have very much of it. So uh, I realized that in all the issues related to the environment and how we manage it and the human uh, natural uh, balance, uh, fresh water was going to be one of the most complex and likely one of the uh, problems that continues to become even more important and to grow um, in the decades ahead. So I've been, you're correct, I've been focused a lot about uh, the what I call the, uh, the geopolitics, so the uh, the international discussion about fresh water and fresh water scarcity um, uh, since two or since really the uh, early 2000s. And so, water scarcity is already a, a problem facing us in many countries. However, do you think that with the growth of the world's population, will this problem be getting more and more serious? And do you think that there will be a clean water crisis facing humans in the future? And do you think there are any solutions to avoid that? So uh, those are excellent questions. Um, so for sure, uh, the issue of water availability, freshwater availability, will continue to grow. It will grow uh, for two reasons, uh, mostly. Uh, first, as you said, we have a growing population, so we have more people uh, demanding or requiring uh, water. Um, and the other reason uh, it's going to, the problem is going, the challenge will continue to grow, is that we have been temporarily, the world has temporarily been solving the problem um, by drilling wells and using what we call ground uh, groundwater. So this is water that has 
um, over centuries and over thousands of years has been stored and built up inside the earth. And we have uh, the world, human population has been utilizing that water. And it's a great resource, but it's a resource that is uh, not really replenished. So if you like, we are using a supply to help solve our current problem. And that use is going to make it uh, that resource less and less in the years ahead. So you will have a situation, I believe, Sophia, where you have more demand, we have more people, and we have less ability than we even do today to provide water to those people. And today we have a pretty big challenge, especially in some countries around the world. Now you also asked a question, um, which was, are there some solutions to this problem? And there are a number of solutions. And uh, even here in the United States, we have seen over decades a few of the different approaches. Um, you, you, there's two sort of general themes or general categories of how to solve this problem. Um, first is you can solve the supply. So you can, uh, if you are in a situation where you have a shortage or a scarcity, uh, Sophia, you can then go look and see if you can find more. So um, in the United States, for instance, you have seen uh, large dams that have been built. Um, so this is a, a way of storing up water and then directing it to places that are demanding more. You've seen large pipelines that will take water from where it is uh, uh, prevalent, so where there's a lot of it, and move it by pipeline to places where there's a shortage. Uh, you see that in your home state of California. So you have a number of what I'll call technology-led uh, supply solutions. Um, you even have some very innovative supply solutions such as desalination, which is uh, a process whereby they will take seawater and remove the salt, and so it becomes uh, uh, potable water or fresh water, use, usable for drinking, um, uh, for agriculture, et cetera. So you have um, supply solutions which will continue to be utilized around the world. Um, uh, usually these supply solutions have lifetimes. So, you know, if you have a dam, and I, I live in Las Vegas, so we have a very large dam here called Hoover Dam, Sophia. Um, and, you know, that dam has been in existence for decades, um, you know, like uh, you know, 75 years, 70 years, um, you know, or, or somewhere in that range. But even today, when you fly over it in an airplane, you can see that the water level is going down. So these supply solutions work well. They can work well for a number of years, but usually they have an end point. The other type of solution to this problem of water availability um, usually revolves around what I'll call the uh, demand side of the equation. So um, can people's behavior or can people uh, use water or respect water uh, differently than they do today. Um, you know, can, uh, can societies help people understand how critical and valuable water is so that we are <clears throat> more thoughtful about how we use it? Um, and maybe that means, Sophia, that we, um, in, in some countries where we 
are blessed to have great uh, financial spending power. Maybe that means we we try not to have as many swimming pools. Maybe that means we try not to uh, <clears throat> wash our cars as often. Maybe we try not to use uh, take as many showers or baths as we currently do. And and you will see in these countries where the water provider, they're usually called utilities, they try to uh, motivate people to use less, um, primarily because they are trying to uh, uh, keep a situation where they are balancing the request or the amount of water requested with the amount of water that they have. So I, <clears throat> I think this, uh, both of these categories will be used and be used a lot in the decades ahead to try to address water scarcity problems. Um, they can be used with some, uh, some degree of effectiveness. Uh, usually they're not uh, permanent. Usually they have a, a time frame. Usually they work well for a while and then they drop off. Um, so I hope that we continue to be very thoughtful and creative as we think about uh, solving the, the water challenge in the decades uh, going forward. Okay, thank you. And so, um, so is it because of your focus on water scarcity that you that you moved your family to Las Vegas? Well, so um, so the, no, and I mean I, we moved to Las Vegas for some other reasons, but Las Vegas is a it's actually a very interesting place to live. Uh, when you have a, a focus and a passion for water-related issues, Sophia. And let me explain. So most people would say, you know, Las Vegas is a very um, irresponsible uh, user of water um, in the macro perspective because we have built a city or the city was built in the middle of a desert where there's really no natural water source um, except for the Colorado River. Um, and, you know, oftentimes people will look at cities such as Las Vegas or Dubai, cities that are in the desert <clears throat> that have large hotels with large swimming pools and people that have many cars that they're washing or maybe they have green grass in the middle of the desert. And they say this is, uh, you know, this is a terrible example of, of water management, water use. Um, now I, I concur, I understand with some of those feelings, but um, you know, the city of Las Vegas or Phoenix, Arizona, you know, these are some examples of cities, frankly, that actually have, have done some of the most um, advanced thinking about water management um, because they know they don't have a lot of it and they know that the cities are growing and they are gonna have to solve this problem in, in some respect. So uh, from a water, policy and a water uh, observer standpoint, it's quite interesting to see, for example, how the very large uh, uh, hospitality and gaming companies um, that have these hotels with thousands and thousands of rooms, um, all the different things that they have done to try to manage their water use uh, much more carefully and much more efficiently. Um, you know, they're not perfect. But uh, they have done some of the more innovative thinking, not only on um, uh, management and, and encouraging people to use less, but also working in support of the Nevada uh, water utility um, to come up with interesting 
Uh, they're called incentive programs to have residents use less water. So for example, Sophia, in, uh, in Las Vegas, and I'm sure as well in Arizona and other uh, places with uh, very arid climates, very dry climates without much water, um, they will actually uh, ask homeowners to pull up all the grass in their yard, uh, replace it either with uh, what's called desert landscaping, so that would be mostly rock and sand, or replace it with artificial turf. Basically replace natural plants with something that doesn't require water. And if you do that, uh, Sophia, at least in the city of Las Vegas, they will actually pay you to do that because they would rather have you um, uh, earn a one-time bonus, if you like, that the utility will pay you. Um, because over the years ahead, that means that you won't be using water for that particular use. I won't have in my yard um, grass. I might not have a big uh, garden. I might not have big trees. Um, so this is uh, uh, some ways that when you live in a very arid city or a very arid community that knows how precious and how scarce water can be, sometimes you get some very innovative thinking. So um, a long answer to your question. I didn't come to Las Vegas because of water. I actually thought that it wouldn't be a great place to learn about water, but I've been surprised that it's given me the chance to observe some pretty interesting and creative uh, work and thinking related to water and water scarcity. So you live in Lake so there are two major water sources there called Lake Mead and the Hoover Dam. And as you said, um, both of those have been um, actually emptying and the water level is actually getting lower and lower. And do you think that there would be any um, ways to stop that from happening? Sure. So um, first to clarify, so Hoover Dam uh, was built to block, to partially block the Colorado River. So a dam will stop the flow of water and then a big pool will uh, develop behind it. And so the big pool which developed behind Hoover Dam is Lake Mead. So it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's a combined system. Uh, you wouldn't have the lake without the dam. Um, uh, so it's combined. So the, the main water source of Las Vegas is indeed Lake Mead. Um, they, uh, uh, we use some groundwater, but its vast majority comes from Lake Mead, which is Colorado River uh, water. Um, and there's a very large series of pipes which runs from that lake down to the city to serve the population of Las Vegas. The, um, uh, you are correct. As I said, it's, it's observable, it's visible when you fly into Las Vegas. You can see the water line has decreased over the years. They call it a bathtub ring um, because you can see uh, it's a very clear white marking where the water used to be and now how much lower it is than at present. Um, so it's going to be a challenge. And how has the city tried to address this? Or how has, <clears throat> how has the local community tried to think about this? Um, so they've really uh, adopted two approaches, uh, maybe two and three, really. Um, first, they are uh, uh, installing 
a series, a new series of pipes that will also go into Lake Mead. But Sophia, they are installing these pipes at a much lower level, a, a much deeper level, because they realize that as the lake, as the water level decreases, um, soon their pipes will be above the water level. So they, their pipes won't be bringing in anything. Uh, so they continue to build, this is a very large engineering project. Um, they call it the, 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 the new straws. They're putting new straws into Lake Mead. Um, the uh, city is also seeking to acquire the rights of water holders. So water from northern, from, uh, from, from rivers and other uh, lakes in northern Nevada. Um, they're acquiring those water rights and they would potentially at some time in the future perhaps build a, a pipeline to bring that water down to the city of Las Vegas. Um, I actually think that's a uh, that's a very controversial solution, Sophia. In your home state of California, uh, this happened uh, several times. It happened uh, very um, uh, visibly in the early 1900s um, in Owens Valley in the city of Los Angeles quietly purchased all the rights to water in the Owens Valley area. And then they built a large pipeline and they took all that water to the city of Los Angeles. And if you go now to <clears throat> Owens Valley, uh, the lake is effectively dried up. Um, it's a terrible sort of environmental um, uh, management uh, challenge. Um, and there's a very famous movie that talked about how this was done. Um, it's a movie called Chinatown, actually, um, with Jack Nicholson. So it's uh, uh, I, I'm less optimistic in the state of Nevada if that solution is going to work. And I think the third uh, approach that might help this overall situation is I think you will continue to find the utility uh, uh, be even more creative and more active with its programs such as the ones I mentioned before that motivate people to think about their water more carefully, um, use it differently and use less of it because um, ultimately uh, you will be in a situation where you can't create water um, and so you need to have people use less of it. And I think um, that is probably where you're going to see some of the more innovative uh, solutions emerge in the decades ahead. And who do you think, like, um, so if to prevent... Um, the water scarcity issue in Las Vegas. What do you think like the first step should be? Do you think that the homeowners should use less water or uh, what do you think like the first step of last year? Well, I think the, the answer is everyone should use less water, whether you're a homeowner or a visitor. But really the first, the, the first step to solving any problem, Sophia, whether it's related to water or otherwise, is to um, is education, is to recognize the problem and explain to people why there is a problem. And I think um, here in Las Vegas, we get a lot of information in the newspaper and uh, through letters and other um, uh, public uh, uh, public channels. But you know, we need people to really understand that water is a scarce resource and we need to, even though it is, is very inexpensive 
Like we don't, we don't feel the pain of using a lot of it, uh, Sophia. And I say pain from a financial perspective because it's so, it's it's very cheap. It's very inexpensive. You know, it's not like it was. Uh, you know, if we had gold, we wouldn't just be sort of using it and throwing it away and letting it, uh, you know, be used improperly. But because water is so inexpensive. You know, many people take long showers. Many people, uh, as they brush their teeth, they leave the water running, um, uh, etc. I mean, people just have to be first educated. So I think the very first step is um, awareness. So make people aware there's a problem and then educate them about why it's important to solve this and some ideas about how to solve it. So um, as with everything, it's just... Uh, start with awareness and start with some education uh, and then people will come up with some good ideas and change hopefully how they behave and how they use water. And also you also one of your current jobs is as advanced leadership fellow in Harvard University and could you please explain what that position is about? Sure so it's um, it's not a job uh, it's actually just the opportunity for me to spend, uh, I spent two years where I was able to go back to the university in Boston and focus on an issue that was important to the world and important to me personally. Um, I, I had 42 other colleagues. These are all individuals um, that had, uh, in effect, uh, pursued and completed much of their professional careers, so they were very experienced from all around the world, and they all had chosen a particular uh, challenge or particular issue to work on. So in my case, Sophia, I was working and looking hard at the issue related to what we've just been discussing, <clears throat> which is the use of water, especially in developing countries, especially or specifically as it relates to energy and agriculture. So those are three key resources, water, energy, and food <clears throat> that are linked. They are absolutely connected. It's very hard to increase one without having some impact on the other two. <clears throat> and in my several years as a, a fellow and as, as, as I continue, I was able to explore new technologies. I was able to explore new um, uh, approaches and new companies and organizations that were thinking hard about managing or helping to solve this constraint around the what's called the water, energy, food nexus. So how, how can you figure out to use less water to grow food? And this is what's led me to Aero Farms. Um, how can you understand uh, how to create more energy um, without using water? Because typically, Sophia, in most cases, to create electricity, um, water is often involved. Um, whether that is a dam, uh, like a large dam will create electricity by having the water flow over the turbines, which turns uh, the turbines to help generate electricity. Uh, you may be... <coughs> moving water uh, through a large pipeline, and that requires very um, uh, strong pumps, which are almost always run on electricity. So it was looking at these three critical resources, 
and how they interact with one another and how you could develop ways to be uh, either have that interaction more efficient or have some innovation that would lessen the relationship. So you could create power without too much water or you could grow food without as much water. So that is what I spent my fellowship on, and that's uh, been consistent with my passions for some time and what I'm currently doing. And so you all, aside from being the advanced leadership fellow at Harvard University, you are always also with Arable Farms. During the, and during the coronavirus, even getting groceries is very dangerous. So many families have planted their own vegetable gardens. Do you think that the concept of Arable Farms could be applied in a smaller version? Very much so, and in fact, uh, excuse me, or very much so. The um, uh, so Aero Farms is is creating a product line that will be sort of household sized farms um, that you can put in your living room, your kitchen, wherever you might have it, and you could grow um, uh, certain uh, vegetables uh, that you wished. Um, they're, they're, uh, so they're, they're, and they're today, um, some people, uh, in fact, for several years have been growing uh, food indoors using uh, lights, using uh, uh, usually LED lights. Um, so the answer is absolutely, it's coming. And I think what you will find, Sophia, is, uh, you know, gardening people worldwide for, for, generations and hundreds and thousands of years they have loved to have uh, not only for food supply but just for the enjoyment of growing their own food in a garden and uh, this technology will let people do that indoors let do let them do that without having uh, to worry about uh, uh, insects without having to worry too much about watering without having to worry if if it's going to, the sun will shine or not. So um, it's coming, uh, Aero Farms will have it soon. Others have their versions out already. And I think this is just a great way, again, um, not only to uh, help people grow food, but really to let people connect and understand like where food comes from. Because I think, you know, for many families that might be living in a large city, you know, they they might forget, they might not have had the opportunity to understand where where things are grown and how plants uh, are turned into food, which we eat on our tables and plates. And so if you could go back in time to around my age, what would you give one, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to yourself? Yeah, so I would absolutely, <clears throat> you know, uh, as long as there wasn't a pandemic, Sophia, I would do two things. I would read as much as I could because the power of reading is extraordinary. It's enjoyable and it's extraordinary and it, it teaches you and shares not only fascinating uh, narratives and fascinating experiences, but it also teaches you as you read, you become a better writer because you learn certain techniques. So I would read a lot, read as much as I could. Um, and then I would also, uh, if you have the chance, uh, travel and get outside as much as you can. It doesn't always mean you have to travel great distances, but just travel and explore the natural communities in which you have the chance to uh, participate in. So that could be just spending time in your local 
state park or spending time in the nearby national forest or might be traveling with your family to parts of Asia or going to Africa to see how other communities live in other parts of the world, what, what natural resources they have available to them. So I would, I would read and travel as much as I could. However, I could do that, you know, whether that's going to the library, buying books, walking in your own community, riding your bike, getting on an airplane with your family. I would do as much of those two things as I possibly could. So you are very busy with your jobs, obviously, because you have uh, you still work with the Bayat Group, and you have your um, position as the Harvard uh, the the um, Advanced Leadership Fellow, and also with Aerofars. But what are some activities you like to do outside of work? So when I'm not uh, working, and you are correct, so I. My full-time job is with Aero Farms, and I have the pleasure of, of helping the Byatt Foundation, and I still do my own personal research on the fellowship. Um, I love to travel myself, Sophia, and I love being outside. And I think I mentioned early on my favorite part of the natural uh, scenery around us is mountains. So I love finding big mountains to, going, to go hiking in. Um, so whether that is in Canada, and the Rocky Mountains in Canada, whether that might be in the Andes in Peru, or even in Chile in South America, or traveling to New Zealand to go see incredible uh, glaciers and mountains. Um, my outside passions are to travel with my family and whenever I can travel to see incredible uh, natural scenery. Okay. Thank you. And so how has COVID-19 impacted your hobbies? Sure. Well, as we've all discovered, Sophia, travel has effectively stopped. So um, uh, since the middle of March, I have not uh, traveled anywhere outside Las Vegas, which is quite different. And unfortunately, I disrupted some, some planned travel that we had, uh, not only for work, but also as a family. Um, so we have Pardon me, postponed our travel. Uh, we were going to go to Rwanda to see the uh, mountain gorillas. So that will have to wait until another year. Um, I was uh, planning, of course, to uh, spend some time in the Middle East uh, for work once again. So um, I have found my opportunity to travel in physically has been reduced, but I've been traveling virtually. It's given me the chance to see and learn and watch videos and read about some other parts of the world that I've had an interest in but not yet had a chance to visit. So um, I'm doing the best as we all are to sort of uh, uh, travel and continue to explore virtually if we can't do it in person. And in our previous conversation you have told me that you extreme, that you enjoy reading books and so what is your favorite quote author and book? Well so <clears throat> don't know if I have a, a, a favorite quote that I'll share with you, but again, I love books related to the, uh, the, the, the conservation movement or the, uh, the activity of conserving our natural environment or thinking differently about the natural world around us. So some of my favorite books in that regard, Sophia, include uh, uh, Silent Spring by a woman named Rachel Carson. Um, this book, uh, it's an older book now. It's written uh, around a time that occurred in the late 1960s um, where 
the United States, many cities were using uh, chemicals uh, to uh, reduce, frankly, reduce uh, the number of mosquitoes that were prevalent. And this woman spent a lot of time understanding that those chemicals were ext actually extremely harmful, not only to, uh, you know, they were lethal to the mosquitoes and insects, but they were also very damaging to birds, bird populations, and even human populations. And, and it's an incredible story of how she um, unraveled this connection, um, then and battled or fought, if you like, um, uh, these these interests, these political interests, and these corporate interests, um, so that they would stop using these chemicals. So, Silent Spring is one of my favorite books related to nature. Um, uh, uh, Cadillac Desert. This is a book by uh, Theodore Dreiser. Dreiser, excuse me. Um, and this is a book, fascinating book about water in the American West. So, this is how places. It tells the story about how cities like Los Angeles and Phoenix, Arizona and Las Vegas, how in the early 1900s and onward, they started to use water, um, how they acquired water, how they thought about managing the water. And it's not always a, um, you know, these are not always a positive, positive stories, right? So, I mean, they, they, they impacted a lot of other communities along the way. They definitely impacted the natural environment around us. Um, but these two books are always amongst my favorite sort of environmentally related books. And they're also great stories. I mean, they're, they're nonfiction, they're true stories. But they're really compelling narratives about, about personalities, about uh, sometimes people that had uh, very, uh, very sort of uh, very negative influences or very, you know, had very personal agendas, which weren't always good for either the, the environment or, or the community. So um, these are two books which I always suggest people read if they're interested in finding, about the, finding out about the environmental movement and how it developed, at least in North America. And last but not least, are there any questions I didn't ask but you feel like I should have? Well, no, Sophia, as always, you're very well prepared and I think you've uh, put together a nice panel of questions, which hopefully my answers uh, we'll be able to share some information or at least spark some potential interest with, uh, with yourself and others that might be listening in. And I really appreciate your time and um, sharing today. I, I hope that I have others opportunities in the future to get your insight on so many topics. Thank you. Well, Sophia, thank you for the opportunity. And of course, I welcome the chance to talk to you at any time or answer any other questions. And I know you have, many, many uh, very compelling and important interests. And uh, I know you have uh, a lot of years ahead of you to explore and help create the solutions to many of these challenges. So however I can help, please just let me know. Okay, thank, thank you again and happy early July 4th. Okay, and you as well, Sophia. Thank you very much. Take care and have a nice day.